Let's pray again. Father, there is no man sufficient to stand behind a pulpit and rightly deliver your word. And yet you've chosen this. You, you work through weak and and frail men to handle these precious jewels of truth. And so we praise you this morning, Father, that the power of your word does not rest in the preacher. That you are the one who, who has breathed out these words and you are the one who comes by your spirit and does the work. So we ask, Father, that you would speak to your children this morning. That not only would you speak, that you would give them ears to hear. Father, as we stand on this, this zenith, breathing in this rarefied air, would you cause us, Father, to have that right mix of trembling and fear and awe and wonder, but at the same time hope and joy and gladness. Father, we know you can do it. We ask that you would. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to return your feet one more time. We read for the second to last time this concluding prayer here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through verse 21. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As I, as I hinted in, in my prayer, I, I feel as though we have, we have been climbing a, a great mountain. And with each week, we, we feel as though we have come to heights that could never be surpassed. And it's only at that moment that we realize we've only come to the foothills. There's, there's still more. And the oxygen seems to get thin and, and we, we know how, how out of our depths we are. And I walk out of this room feeling a, just a, a bit frustrated and 
just knowing my own weakness and inability to, to really take in and comprehend everything that God is revealing to us here. But I feel as though I'm in good company. I feel as though the Apostle Paul is right there with me. Even this inspired author, I feel as though he can hardly handle the things that God is revealing and, and speaking to his people through him. And so we've, we've come to this, to this peak, this mountaintop of this prayer, filled with all the fullness of God. Now, God willing, after the Advent season, we're going to come back to chapter four and he's going to come back down to ground level. And he's going to begin talking about the way in which we should walk. Therefore, walk in this way. That's the question that the Christian has to eventually ask himself. How then should we live? If these things are true and this power is real, how then should we live? But here's the thing. We've just spent two years having our minds stretched, being swept up and showing pictures that we cannot ever and we will not ever fully comprehend. But I don't want you thinking, okay, good, now we get to the imperatives, now we get to how we're supposed to walk and things are going to get easy. They're not. I'll tell you what I've been feeling in my own heart is I've started looking forward and studying ahead and really considering what the Apostle Paul is going to call us to in these last three chapters of his letter to the Ephesians. I found myself feeling even weaker and even, even more inadequate. And so it feels right and appropriate that as we as we've climbed this hill, we come, to, we come to the top of this mountain peak of his prayer that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that we would just stand there for a minute as, as we look down and go, yes, now we, we've got to go live. We've got to go walk this thing out. But the only way any of that works is if we stand here for a moment and we worship. We just stop here and we, and we, we praise. We praise this God who has just revealed himself, even in these prayers. And so the Apostle Paul, as he was, he, as he often did, he concludes this prayer with a, with a doxology. This is his ordinary prayer pattern. He doesn't, he doesn't always wait till the end of a letter to get to the doxology. We're, we're right here in the middle. And, and he launches into this doxology. And that's a word we use often, but it's, it, it really just means glory words. Doxa means glory and logos means word. It's a glory word. It's a, it's a word of praise. That song that we sing at the, end of, at the end of our worship service each week, praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's a doxology. We're praising God for who he is. We're, we're adoring God. We're speaking of God's glory. And, and now the reality is we have this tendency to just rush past the doxologies. We, we do it sometimes in worship. You've just sat through an hour of preaching. You've got other things out there that are drawing your attention. And so it's just kind of, yeah, this is that song we sing. Just, it's just a period at the end of the service without ever bringing our heart or our minds to the words we're actually reciting. But more than this, to the God about whom and to whom we're singing. That's why I ask you to consider 
at the conclusion of this service and every other service. We do it all the time. I, I hear of people that sing doxology at, at birthday parties or at, they're just out in public. Our people are just together and we're at Iguana Joe's and I don't know. The queso is good. Should we stand and sing doxology together? I just give your heart and your mind to what you're doing. To stand at attention, to hold hands with your, with your brothers and sisters, singing together as one. But I pray that you would give equal attention to the doxologies that we find in Scripture. Again, we have this tendency. We, we're reading for the, for the meat and for the substance and for the doctrine and for the theology. And then we get to the words of praise and we assume that's just Paul being Paul. It's just Paul doing what Paul does. He's getting carried away. He's just running away from himself. And this is just his obligatory, I love you, God. And we don't ever slow down to really consider what, what, what's he saying here. And if we don't do that, if we don't slow down and, and treat these God-breathed words the same way we treat every other portion of sacred scripture, we've made a tremendous mistake. Firstly, because the people of God have not truly prayed until you've ascribed glory to God. We're not little children giving our father a drive-by. I need 20 bucks on the way out the door. The purpose of prayer is the purpose of all things. It's to bring glory to God. So you've not prayed until you have ascribed glory to God. But beyond this, Paul has just finished asking for some really, really big things. These petitions that he's made, they're, they're not minor. And that's why it's important that we read these doxologies in context. What I found is most people, as they're doing their devotional reading or they're studying the word, they rush past the doxologies. And the only time people do turn to the doxologies, they seem to rip them out of context and just use them over here somewhere. But this, this happened, th these words came from the mouth of God through the pen of Paul at a specific place in this letter. Again, he didn't put it at the end as, as the capstone. He places it right here in the middle. After Paul has just asked for these remarkable things, the same things that I prayed for us earlier, We'd be stronger. Are you tired of your weakness? That you would be strengthened in your inner man. That your life would be rooted and grounded in love. That you would know experientially and intimately the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you could be filled as much as a man can know of God and experience of God. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. And, and again, it's easy to come to this and think, these massive requests are just, they're hyperbole. They don't actually mean anything more than Jesus loves me. But, but when you slow down to recognize this is an inspired prayer. This is what God prays for you. This is desire for you through his authorized spokesman. Therefore, this must be the most critical thing that can be prayed for you. And how would our lives change if God actually responded? If God actually answered this prayer in the affirmative. And so if you're like me, and I don't know how many weeks now we've been in this prayer, my guess is going to be six or, or something like this. 
Six or seven weeks we've spent now in this prayer. If you're anything like me and you've begun to see the value in these things that Paul is praying for, and if you've begun to ask God for them and to strive towards them, then you've probably come to realize how incapable you are in and of yourself. You've probably come to realize why the Apostle Paul began with this request that you would be strengthened in your inner man. You know how much strengthening with power has to happen if any of these worthwhile things are going to come to your life. You know your weakness probably more than you did before. You've come to realize the problem is within, the power's got to come from without, and it's got to change me. It's got to, it's got to transform me. And so if you've considered this prayer and you've valued this prayer and you've given yourself over to this prayer, then you know more than ever before, then God's got to show up and do something. God's got to be the one to work. And, and so when we consider this doxology, this praise word that Paul is offering, you recognize that he is giving us not just this picture of God and his glory, he's reminding us and giving us assurance that this is the God who can do what we have asked. He isn't just thanking God here. He's affirming his ability. And that's really the way that all of Paul's doxologies, that's really the pattern that all of them follow. He'll say something that is true about God, and then he'll praise his name. Romans 16, verse 25, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, who is this God? He is a God who is able to strengthen you. In his first letter to Timothy, 117, he says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To Titus, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He begins this doxology by saying things that are just true about God. Things that God has revealed to us about his nature and his plans and his purposes. And it's only from then that he's now ready to, to praise his name. He finishes that doxology in Romans. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. To Timothy, but honor and glory forever and ever to this God. Amen. To Titus, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now forevermore. Amen. That's the pattern. Who is God? Who is this God that I am worshiping? And in this, I find some assurance and some hope that he can do what I have asked. And then I praise him for who he is. That's what we see here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. He's promising us that God can do what he's called us to ask him for. The words that we worship God with matter. Not only because we want to worship in spirit and in truth. We want to say right things and true things about God. But because we are radically shaped by the things we say in worship. Our minds and our hearts and our lives are formed and shaped by the things that we say. I want you to think about 
when King David comes back from slaying Goliath and you remember the, the women are out in the streets and they're dancing and they're singing and they're, and they're saying, Saul has killed thousands, but David, tens of thousands. What happens in that song? King David is honored as the one, the champion, the one who has taken down Goliath and slayed tens of thousands. But what happens to the hearts of those women and their children? How much safer and more secure do they know, do they feel knowing I've got a champion like that? It's not just honoring God. It's changing us. So we see he begins like this, verse 20. Now to him. Who's him? Him is this God that we have been learning about. As he says in verse 15, he is the one from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. It is God. It is God the Father. And this is his standard doxological pattern. The same way he prayed in Romans, the same way he prayed in Titus. I'm ascribing honor and glory to him. Now to him. What he's doing is he's setting our heart in the proper place. He's setting our mind in the proper place. It's to God. And he carries with it. Again, if we... We take this in context as God has designed and we don't just, just rip it out and throw it on a fortune cookie or on a bumper sticker or post it on Facebook. If we take it in the whole flow of the, the context of the prayer that Paul has been offering, if we take it in the flow of this letter that we've been studying, then it drags with us, that word him drags with it everything that we've just been studying. Go all the way back to chapter one and everything that we know to be true about this triune God. All that the Father planned and all that the Son accomplished and all that the Spirit has come to apply. This God who came to you while you were his enemy, while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and yet because of his great love has made you alive. This God who has joined you together with this faith family. This God who has put his Spirit within you as a seal and a promise and a guarantee of glory to come. That's the hymn, and all of that comes rushing in when we say, now to him. And this is what Paul is doing. He's always directing our focus upward. He's always directing us off of the earth, off of each other, off of ourselves, and on to God. Now to him. Now, I know that this seems silly or, or, or pointless. To even bring up in a, in a group like this, in, in a gathering of saints like this. But I draw your attention to the fact that he doesn't call him a who, I'm excuse me, he doesn't call it an it, he calls him a him. We're dealing with a personal God. We're not dealing with a force. We're not dealing with naked power. We're not dealing with some ethereal something out there. We're dealing with a person. An interpersonal being, one who identifies himself as your father. You see, a force or a, or a naked power you can't commune with, you can't love, you, you can't interact with, you can't have a conversation with. But a God who is a him, you, you can. And it struck me this week as I, as I thought through this prayer and I, and I really considered how much do my prayers look like Paul prayers? I had to wonder if somebody could see into my head. They could hear my thoughts. Or they, could, they could hear the echoes of my heart when I go to the Father in prayer. Would they actually believe that I actually believe that I was speaking to a person? I 
Does it actually sound like there's something that's, that's happening there between a child and his father? But he's saying this is who he is. He's a him, not a him who is able. And the root word there, it's, it's the same word that's translated power. When he talks about the power that's at work within us, it's the same word. And so Paul is directing us to something specific about this God. He carries with it everything that we know about God and everything that God has revealed to us in the previous three chapters. But he says, this is the one particular thing you need to know. I need to direct your mind and I need to direct your hearts to the ability and to the power of God. And this is one of the most fundamental and elementary understandings of God. When your children were little, I don't know, I'll have to ask Miss Heidi if we still sing this song anymore, but my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. What do we know about God? One of the most fundamental things we know about God, God is big and God is powerful and God is able. It jumps right off the very beginning pages of Scripture to us, right out the gate. We know this is a God. My God is a God who is able. He's a God who comes out the gate breathing stars and creating light and forming life and bringing order from chaos. He's a God who brings things into being where there was completely nothing. Ex nihilo, there was nothing, and yet from that nothing, by the power and the ability of this God, came literally every single thing that is. It's the most fundamental understanding of who God is, that our God is an able God. And we don't just see it in the beginning of Scripture, we see this running all throughout. Psalm 62, 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Revelation 19, 6, we get to the end of the story and we read, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty. Some translate that as the Omnipotent. That's what the King James says. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Omnipotent, He reigns. 1 Chronicles 29, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Not just the things that we see, but things that are unseen. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor came from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. He begins his prayers with this understanding that this God is a God who is able, who power flows from. He doesn't have some resource of power over here. He doesn't have some power that he bends to his will, that this power comes from his very nature, from his being. He's a God who is able. How able? Second Chronicles 20, verse 6, Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms and the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none are able to withstand you. The prophet Jeremiah 32, 17 says something very similar. Our Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. How often they direct us back to that very first chapter in Genesis. I've told you more times than I know how, if you don't get the first three chapters of the book right, you're going to miss a whole lot of what comes next. So they're constantly drawing their hearts back to, you're the one who created everything that is visible and invisible, heaven and on earth. Therefore, nothing is too hard for you. 
What did the angel of the Lord say? What did Gabriel say when he came to the young virgin girl on Christmas? Well, it wasn't Christmas. Nine months before Christmas. And he says, a child will be born from you. How? This is an impossible thing. And what does he say? That with God, nothing is impossible. It's not just that he's more able. There's nothing that's impossible. So that's where he's having us look. As we consider all of these promises, as we consider all of the, all of the difficulties we might have in not only comprehending, but but trying to shape our lives in accordance with these promises, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't look to yourself. Don't look to your resources. Don't look to your abilities. Don't look to the circumstances. Don't look to the size of the trouble. Don't look to the enemies. Don't look to anything around you, but look to God. Look to God and to his ability. His ability to create, his ability to heal, his ability to reconcile, his ability to bring life, his ability to form, his ability to reform. Quit looking at the things that are right in front of your face. Quit looking at the things that are threatening you. Quit telling me all the reasons you can't. I know you can't. Look to God who is able. All-powerful. All-powerful. Omnipotent. That means there is no end. Infinite in his power. This means that there is never a thing that God calls us to and there's never a thing that God sets out to do that he's got to grunt to accomplish. God never breaks a sweat. God never, never has to stutter step. He never has to put a little something extra into it. He never has to worry that he's going to run out of resources. He is infinite, unending in his power and in his ability. He says, that's where you set your heart. Now to him who is able. He says, now to him who is able to do. That, that might seem redundant, him who is able to do. But I want you to think about all the other gods that are. All those gods who are not gods. The Ephesians are living here in this place where Artemis reigns. You've got this seventh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there in this temple to Artemis. And, and, they, and they praised Artemis and they worshipped on Ar Artemis and they honored Artemis. And then when somebody spoke out against Artemis, they got real worried. What will happen to our God if we allow men to continue to speak against them? What will happen to our God if we allow men to attack? I want you to think about Dagon, the God of the Philistines. You remember this story? The people of Israel foolishly rushed, rushed out into battle and when things didn't go their way, they brought the Ark of the Lord out there, the Ark of the Covenant, believing that they had God trapped in some way and they could bend him to their will. And then as the Philistines capture the Ark, what do they do? What did he right-minded people would do they figure our God must be more powerful than your God because we have defeated you and so they take the ark and they put it in front of their God Dagon it's meant to be a picture of the God of the Israelites of Yahweh bowing down and worship to Dagon the true and living God and then they come out the next morning and oops our God fell over so they set him back up thinking they can make all things right they come back up come back out the next day oops our God has fallen over again, and he lost his head in his hands. It reminded that this is a God who is able, but a God who is able to do. That doesn't need you to set him back up. That doesn't need you to fight his battles on his behalf. Going back to this section of Isaiah that we're reading, this, this, this trial of the idols. We read this, Isaiah 46, 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that I may be alike? 
Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in its scales, they hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. Then they fall down and worship it. He said, you take gold and you take silver and you go to a, you go to a craftsman and he makes you your god. And then you fall down on your face before him. And then, verse 7, they lift it on their shoulders and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one carries it, excuse me, if one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. They have a God who does not do. We have a God who does. He's not only has he done, not just past tense. We don't just look to the first three chapters of Genesis and say God has done, but he's a God who's doing in the present tense, here and now. I want you to think about the encounter that Elijah had with the prophets of Baal. They were going to determine once and for all who is the true and living God. And so Elijah mocks them. First Kings 18, Elijah mocks these prophets as he says, cry aloud for he is a God. But he's not showing up and he's not doing. And so Elijah says, well, maybe he's musing. Maybe he's, he's thinking about what needs to happen. Or maybe he's relieving himself. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep and he needs to be awakened. And so these prophets, they take the bait and they start cutting themselves and ripping their clothes and screaming. It's a ruckus and a loud and a well-attended worship service. But the scripture goes on to say, but there was no voice. No one answered and no one paid attention. This is the God of the world. These are the gods of the world. But Yahweh is not like that. Yahweh is a God who is not only able, but he is active. He's not only sovereign, possessing all authority and all power and all ability. Not only can he do whatever he pleases, but he does whatever he pleases. He's providentially working that which he desires. Bring to pass that which he wills. Remember Ephesians 1.11 where we read that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. He didn't just have the power, he providentially exercises that power. And what kind of things? If we stand on this mountaintop and we think about this God, the God who breathes stars and the God who proves that all other gods are false and dead and worthless, we could fall in the trap of believing that he only moves at big and important times. Surely a God like this can't be bothered with ordinary, everyday kind of things. But scripture tells us the opposite. Scripture tells us that man casts the lot but it is God who determines its outcome. You roll the dice. Is there anything less meaningful than rolling the dice? Is there any, anything more arbitrary and, and less significant than a man rolling the dice? And yet it says that it's decision. The outcome is from God. Psalm 135, 6 to 7 says that he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who brings lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from its storehouses. The weather. The rain, the lightning, the wind. This is God's providential hand. This is him exercising his power. This is a God who is able to do. Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. We've had a bunch of birds flying into the windows at our house. Like a lot, an abnormal lot. I don't know what's happening. And Amanda being the bird whisperer that she is, she never just lets them lay there. She picks them up and nurses them to health and snow whites them back into. <laughs> so the girls asked me yesterday, they said, uh, 
Dad, how would you feel about us putting bubble stickers on the windows so the birds could see? Because aren't you kind of a murderer if you don't put bubble stickers up and you keep letting these birds fly in the windows? And I said, God's ordained it. Anna said that was an abuse of scripture. <laughs> if we put the stickers up, God's ordained it. If we don't, God's ordained it. If the bird smacks into the window and Amanda nurses it back to health and it flies away, God's ordained it. If the bird breaks his neck and dies, God has ordained it. The number of hairs on your head, the number of days in your life, the numbers of trial, the moments of suffering, everything that comes to pass, this God who is able has done. Daniel 2.29 says he changes the times and seasons, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's one thing to jack with birds. It's another thing that hairs on my head. It's another thing to move kings and set up kingdoms and nations. But he's dealing with the hearts of men now. This is a God who is able to do. The heart of man plans its ways, says Proverbs 16, 9, but the Lord establishes his steps. This same God who has stopped the sun in the sky, this same God who has risen men to life, this same, man who, this same God who has sent fire and flood from heaven, this same God is the God who is able to do in your heart who is able to do in your life, who is able to do the hairs on your head, the days of your life, restore your marriage, reconcile your children, draw men to himself, turn your heart and faith towards him. This is the God who is able to do. That's the God that he's drawing our attention to. This God who not only possesses all power and all authority to do whatever he pleases, but he exercises it all times. He doesn't merely make plans and doesn't merely have the ability to execute these plans, but he does. He comes and he does. What did R.C. Sproul say? There's not one maverick molecule, not one piece of dust, not one bird, not one gnat, not one hair, not one moment in your life that the sovereign, powerful, able God of the universe has not sovereignly ordained. This is the God who is able to do. This is the God to whom we pray. So I ask you this morning not to just stop, though, at this knowledge. This isn't a systematic theology class. This isn't just trying to figure out what is the upper limit of God's ability or what is the upper limit of God's willingness to get involved in his creation. It's not just about knowing things about God. And it's not just about getting into debates about what God does and does not do. It's about knowing God. So I'm asking you to see with the eyes of your heart, beyond the words, beyond the theology, beyond what I'm saying to you, to the God who is there behind it all. To the God that I'm describing, this one who is a him. That's where your hope lies. That's the purpose of this prayer. That's the one we're trying to glorify. But Paul goes even further than this. Something even more remarkable. That not only is this God in possession of infinite power, and not only does he exercise that power, but he does so in response to our prayers. He says, all that we ask, who is we? Who is the, who is the we here? Well, it's, it's the saints. It's the elect. It's those who have been adopted by God. 
Now, it's, it's one thing to worship an all-powerful God, a God whose ability knows no end. It's another thing to recognize that this all-powerful God is, is moving and acting and working and accomplishing his will in all creation. It's another thing to know that this sovereign and all-powerful God has welcomed you as children. You, you recognize that the understanding that this God's power knows no end, it should be a thing of terror for those that aren't his. They will reach the end of this life and recognize that that power has been turned on them. But that's one thing in and of itself. But then to know that this God who is sovereign and powerful and able to do and working all things according to the counsel of his will, that at the same time, somehow, simultaneously, he is working according to our prayers. You recognize that this great big God isn't just all powerful. He's all good. He's all loving. He's all condescending to come and listen to the prayers of man. King David seemed to be overwhelmed by it in Psalm 34 when he says, this poor man cried, speaking of himself, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Who are you that God would listen to you? Your dog doesn't listen to you. Your children don't listen to you. But the God of the universe? The God of the universe would turn his ear and turn his eyes and he would act in accordance with his power in response to your prayers. Now, if you truly believe this and if you truly trusted in this, your first response at every trial and every suffering and every threat that stood in front of you, your first thought would be, how quickly can I get to my father and ask him to help? How quickly can I get in front of my father and ask him to please work, to please act, to please do, exercising his power on my behalf? You remember the leper that came to the Lord in Matthew 8? The leper came and knelt down before him and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. That's got to be the beginning of our prayers. God, I know you're able. There's nothing I'm going to bring to you that you're not able to do. I know you're able. Are you willing? Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched the leper and he said, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. This man knew he had a problem and he knew that he had one who was able. He rushed as quickly as he can to the one who was able. He didn't demand. He, didn't, he knew that he did not deserve. He says, God, if, you, if you're willing, my Lord, if you're willing, I know that you're able. That ought to be our posture. And when there's no prayer, there's no request that we bring to him that he is not able to do. But Paul's not done. He doesn't just say that God is willing to exercise his immeasurable power in response to all that we ask. He says all that we ask or think. Even those things that you don't have the audacity to utter. Even those things that are in the back of your mind that you think, I can't possibly go to God with this. He says, even then. 1 Kings 8, 39, Solomon's prayer of dedication over the temple. He says, it's you and you only who know the hearts of all the children of mankind. King David again in Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because this God, he's not only omnipotent, he's not only supremely able, he's not only actively working and moving and doing in his creation, but he also knows all things. He knows your heart better than you know yourself. He knows those things that you think, but you're not, you're not yet willing to utter before him. So where does this leave us then? What then does our prayer life look like? And how then is he, is he moving and he act, and acting in real time? 
Paul says in his letter to the Romans, Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. For he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We take Psalm 828 and we take it out of context. And it's right to look at your brother in the middle of suffering and in the middle of sadness, in the middle of loss and say, listen, God works all things according to good for those who are his, for those who love him. For those who have been called according to his purpose, he's working good for you even now. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for you a weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's doing for you good right now. But if you see it in context, you realize he says this on the heels of saying, and you don't even know what to ask for God in this moment. You don't even know what to bring before him. But the spirit of God knows. He knows your heart. He knows the mind of God. And he will utter those things that need to be uttered on your behalf. So that I can have confidence as I go before God that God is guaranteed every single time to give me one of two things. He will always either give me the thing that I asked for or the thing that I would have asked for if I knew what he knew. What freedom. What hope. So even when I'm in the middle of the situation, I don't know how to cry to God. I don't have the strength to cry to God. I don't even, I can't figure out my own thoughts in that moment. I have supreme confidence that the Spirit is there working for me in that moment. But there's more. Paul didn't just say that God is supremely able, and he didn't just say that God is supremely able to do and to work and to act and to accomplish his will. He didn't just say that he's able to do in accordance with all that we ask or all that we think. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Now this is Paul's pattern. He just starts piling up words. Far more abundantly. That's one word in the Greek and it's only used three times in scripture. But this far more, it's the word hooper. It's where we get our word hyper from. It means above or beyond or, or past. So we're back to this idea of something that is infinite or, or, or immeasurable or beyond anything. And then abundance, you know this word, it means a lot. There's a, there's a lot. There's much of it. So he's saying it's, it's beyond a lot. It's beyond much. It's beyond abundant. But he doesn't stop there. He says it's far more abundant than all. He uses the word hooper again. It's like super duper. More than all. All. All means all. All means everything. So the Apostle Paul is saying, far more abundantly more. Exceedingly abundantly further more. I mean, he's running out of superlatives. He's just, he's piling it up. Infinitely more abundantly above everything more than everything. He's piling them up. He's not, so he's not just saying that God is the most able. He's not just saying that God has ability that far surpasses everything else in all creation. He's saying that God is unfathomably, fathomably, immeasurably, superabundantly more able than everything else that ever was. Or that you could ever think. Or that you could ever ask. Do you see it? He's saying here that you can take your mind to the highest level of power. Think, think of the, the, the most powerful thing that you can ever comprehend in your little feeble mind. 
and you've still fallen infinitely short. This means that if you were to put together all 200 billion trillion stars, that's a real number, all 200 billion trillion stars that exist in all the universe, you take all their power together and they are no closer to accomplishing the power that is in God than a dead slug on the side of the road. That is the gulf that exists between this super abundant, infinitely able, all powerful God of the universe and everything else that is. And not just everything else that is, everything that you could even ask for or think about. And that's the key. It's not just that God is more powerful than everything that he's created and everything that is. It's even than anything you could want or desire or think about. It means that you could gather together all the greatest minds. I'm always impressed by, by forward thinkers. I'm impressed by innovators. You think about Elon Musk or somebody like this that is able to look at something and go, I know where this is going. And we got, we got cars that run on batteries now and I can look forward and tell you someday they're going to drive themselves. And I guess he isn't that original. Maybe like the Jetsons or somebody had it figured out before him. But, but you've, you've got these forward thinkers that are able to look forward and say, I see the trajectory and I, I know what will be possible in the future. So you could get together all the Elon Musks and all the greatest thinkers in the world. You can put them all together and say, okay, what is possible? What's the highest things you can think? Even if you don't think it's possible, What's the highest thing that you can imagine and still you have fallen infinitely short of God's ability and his power to do? Not just all that you ask, all that you could even dream up, all that you can think of, you're still infinitely short. Anselm of Canterbury said that God is that which is beyond all that we can even conceive. This is part of what makes the sin of making graven images so foolish. Why is it such an offense to God? Because you could, you could gather together the greatest theologians man has ever known and the greatest artists that man has ever known. And anything that they make is going to be dung compared to God. Anything they can think up or dream or imagine, it is going to be trash. It's going to be a slug dead, dead on the side of the road compared to God. Infinitely short of this God. In the positive not only does this prohibit us from making anything that's meant to look like God, but again, we're right back to the picture of hope and courage and assurance because this means that God is not limited by your puny mind. God's ability to do is not limited by the weakness of your prayers. And that's what Paul is trying to get you to see here. That it is God's power and it's not your prayers and it's not even your most audacious of thoughts that is the upper limit for God's ability to do for his people. P people will often say there's, there's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. And that's, that's, not, that's not a bad statement as far as it goes. But the power isn't in the prayer. The power is in God. That's why he's, he's saying to him be the glory. So that you recognize that the most powerful of prayers, the most beautiful of prayers, the most high-minded of thinkers, they're no closer to maxing out God's ability in prayer than a child that says, God, I love you, help. Do, do you see the, the freedom and do you see the, the hope and do you see the joy that this is meant to bring? That there's no enemy too big, there's no sickness too threatening, there's no relationship too broken, there's no child too lost for this God. 
He can do infinitely more than you could even imagine in this moment, in that situation. So it just completely frees us up. That we can walk then as we come to chapter 4. We can walk in absolute obedience knowing there is no cost that he's not able to turn around and give us abundantly more. We're not dealing with a God who has limited resources or, or limited ability. But this freedom only comes and this confidence only happens when, number one, we trust in his plans. I confess to you Wednesday night that part of the reason I don't find the joy and the hope and the assurance that I should in light of all these truths about God is because I don't always trust where God is leading me. I know that it's the best. I know that it's better than anything that I'm going to lose up here. But my heart's too entangled with the things of the world. I'm worried, what's it going to cost me? But then, number two, we've got to recognize again that Paul isn't just doing systematic theology. He's talking about God who is working, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to his power at work within us. Paul wants us to see that this God, he, when you desire to see his power and his ability to do, you don't look at the stars out there somewhere, although they will direct your heart there at times. You don't even look at something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ, although he'll direct your heart there at times. He says his work within us. You look no further than yourself. And so if you're like me, you sit in a place like this and you think, in what way has God worked super abundantly, infinitely more than anything I could imagine in my life? I feel weak. I feel tired. I feel faulty. I feel frail. I continue to wrestle with my sin. So in what way has God worked like this? The question is, has God not brought you from death to life? Has God not snatched you from the hand of the enemy? Christian, you're a miracle. And it took no less power for the God of the universe to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life than it did for him to breathe the stars or raise his son from the dead. And this is the problem of having such a a low and anemic view of conversion. If we have this view where the gospel is just presented and then God stands back and, and just kind of passively hopes and waits that you might turn your heart towards him, that you might exercise faith towards him, then we rob ourselves of seeing the way in which God has already exercised this kind of power. The same time of, kind of power that he's drawing our heart to, he's already exercised it in you. You remember what happened when the rich young ruler walked away from Christ? His disciples looked at him and said, well, then who can be saved? The question wasn't who can forgive his sins. The question wasn't who was able to reconcile him to God. The question was, this guy's heart is hardened towards you. This guy rejected the call of the gospel. Who can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. But when we don't see salvation in that lens and we don't see conversion as a powerful working of God, then we don't see his work within us and we don't see his work within others. So then when some eight-year-old little girl for the first time in her life comes to true conviction and, and life-giving repentance, we see it as just the natural outflow. Of course they did this. We raised them in the church. We prayed when they were kids. We taught them the gospel. We don't recognize the miracle of what has happened there. And beyond this, we don't recognize all the ways in which he continues to work beyond the moment of conversion. Talk about acts doing more than you ask or more than you could think. I want you to think back to the day in which you cried. If you could remember that day, the day in which you cried out to the Lord, the day when you repented and believed, did you have any idea everything that he had in store for you? 
You probably just wanted to be shed of this conviction of sin, or you probably just wanted to have some sense of reconciliation with God. And yet from that day forward, all the ways in which he has worked in you, adopting you into his family, strengthening you, bringing you into a family just like this, promising you that you'd be filled with all his fullness, eventually that you'd see his glory. All these things he has done for you since that day. And it's no less of a miracle and it's no less supernatural power that holds you. What does Jesus say to his sheep? He says, I will hold you and no one will snatch you from my hand. And my father is greater than all and no one is able to snatch you from my father's hand. Again, we rob ourselves of seeing this when we make it all about us and our abilities. And so we look around at this. We look at the eight-year-old little girl that is coming to faith. We recognize that's a supernatural work of God. We look at you waking up this morning still believing, and we say, that's a supernatural work of God. And I can boldly stand before you this morning and say, and guess what? He can do infinitely more. How do I know? Because I can think of that. I've seen it. If you can ask it, if you can see it, if you can think it, he can do infinitely more than this. This is the basis on which Paul offers this prayer. This is the basis on which we will come back tonight and sing praises to God. We'll come to this word of thanks and praise and, and glory to God based on that. Based on knowing that no matter what I face, no matter what my weakness, no matter what the circumstance, I've got a God who is able to do infinitely more than I could even ask. Infinitely more than I'm able to even think in this moment. That's where he's telling us to get our eyes. And it will radically transform. If we would actually believe it in our hearts, if we would actually be foolish enough to pray in accordance with this kind of belief, how would this transform your life? Because here's what happens, okay? We get in a room like this. I know I'm late on, short on time, but we get in a room like this and we, and we believe things like this. Every one of you, you're, you're nodding your head. You give me an amen. If you're not asleep, you're nodding your head. You give me an amen. I know that you believe these things to be true. And then I say, okay, time for a prayer meeting. And we all get together and pray for sprained ankles. We all get together and pray that God would pay our bills. We don't dare pray for revival. We don't dare pray for God to do these things that are super abundantly more than everything we could even ask or think. Because that's kooky. That's charismatic. That's weird. But it's what he's called us to do. So my challenge to you, my challenge to us as a people is that we would actually believe these words. We would actually live like God's ability to do, like the solution to our issues are not tied to our own resources, our own ability, our own power, but a God with limitless ability and power. And that you would pray like this, that the constant prayer of your heart would be, God, I can't even see all that you can do. I'm asking you to do it all. I'm asking you to show me what is your will, to align my life with it, and then to trust you with whatever the outcome is. It will be infinitely greater, super abundantly more than anything that I can ask or anything that I can even think. Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you that your power knows no end. And we thank you, Father, that your willingness to act and to do is not tied to our ability to ask or to think. And so, Father, I ask that you would help us, in light of this, to trust you with whatever it is. Whatever these burdens are that we've brought into this place, that we would cast them at your feet, knowing that those are, those are nothing. There's nothing for you to meet that need and to work in a powerful way. But then, Father, help our hearts and our hopes to soar to that which we've not yet even imagined. 
to long for that day when we'll see things we've not yet thought of and to rejoice and trust you in that. Father, again, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.